So today, as I've said, we are going to cover all of chapters 20 and 21. Between the two chapters, there's actually four different stories. I've read for you the two middle stories, or part of them, uh, and, uh, and, and in summary, the first one from chapter 21 verses 1 to 7 Uh, The long-awaited promised son, Isaac, is welcomed with laughter into the home. And then the uh, the third story of four, right after that, is where Abraham's first son, Ishmael, is driven from the home. The Lord gives and takes away, we've just sung. And in the same moment, or within the span of a couple of years, Abraham receives the son of promise and is required to drive away his first son. All of chapter 20 beforehand and the end of chapter 21 after what we've read, sandwiching the stories of Abraham and his two sons are two more stories uh, which, uh, which really are bred in the sandwich because they repeat themselves in some ways. They are two stories of Abraham's dealing with a, dealings with a Philistine king named Abimelech. And when we put all of this together, we will see that Abraham's life is an example of problems and problem-solving that demands every scrap of wit and faith to overcome. And in the process, we see that Abraham's wit and wisdom gets him into as much trouble as it gets him out of. Uh, And it is only God who is always faithful all the time in every trial. Genesis chapter 1 verse 2. So I'm going to do bring you all the way back to the very first page of the Bible, paints this picture of uh, the world uh, before God spoke and called things to order. Where am I? There. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Uh, This is how things were before God spoke and created order uh, and created all things that we see and know and love. There is a formlessness, a chaotic aimlessness that typifies, uh, for our purposes today, a lot of Abraham's life as well. But as we look at chapters 20 and 21, we will see the Spirit of God hovering, watching, listening, ordering and providing. And so although Abraham is a ridiculously rich stockman, roaming Palestine something like 4,000 years ago, a man who speaks to God and to kings, I don't think it's going to be too difficult for us to see a little bit of ourselves in this as well. Problems and problem solving. Living in something like formless chaos at times. Sometimes a chaos that's self-inflicted by our own wit and wisdom. And sometimes a life that is formless and chaotic because of circumstance and just what it means to live in the life that we've inherited and the world we've been born into. And over and above it all, God is ever-present. He is watching, listening, ordering and providing. He is the spirit who hovers over uh, and speaks order and exercises faithfulness over everything. Here's our summary of the four stories. The middle two are the ones we read. Stolen Sarah, again, in chapter 20. Happy Father's Day, and then the world's best dad, who drives his son away. And then, first my wife, now my well. Uh, I'll explain that a little bit later. But first of all, stolen Sarah, 
again. 21, uh, chapter 20, verse 1 gives us the first reminder of Abraham's daily chaos. Uh, that although he is, uh, he's grown rich beyond belief, he has no permanent place to lay his head. Have a look in verse 1. It says, From there Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. Now look, there's going to be a lot of names in there that you don't recognise, and, uh, and, and we will learn as much as is uh, really crucial for those purposes. But you can see that Abraham is a man who journeys and sojourns. Uh, If you remember from last week, Abraham has just witnessed the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah for their sin. Uh, And here those two key words, journey and sojourn, remind us that although God has promised to give Abraham and his descendants all of this land to be his own, as he approaches a hundred years of age, Abraham is still camping. He's still a wanderer and a stranger in someone else's backyard. We don't really use the word sojourn much, but you can hear the connection when you put those words together, journey and sojourn. Uh, this is a te- to sojourn is to dwell temporarily. Uh, you might almost use the word of a holiday, although what Abraham's doing is no holiday. Uh, this is his life. He's a gypsy, moving around in tents. So this is interesting language, isn't it, for a man uh, to be living as a gypsy in what he has been told will be his own land. And he's 100 years old and he's no closer to owning any of it. And that is, I would say, that is one immediate connection that we have with Abraham. Okay, the Bible tells us in New Testament times that we as Christians are sojourners. We are exiles and visitors in a world that isn't our own. We are a minority group. The Bible tells us that as Christians, our citizenship is in heaven that heaven is where we belong. That is our eternal home, but we're not there yet. For now, we wander. Despite some strange claims that you might still hear around the trap, uh, the traps, Australia is not a Christian country. It isn't. Now, certain Christian principles were incorporated in Australia's founding, and sure, maybe you might use that to say we are a Christian na- uh, nation through heritage or something like it. Uh, We are a country that's governed largely by the principles of justice and mercy that you would hear about in the Bible. But in many ways, Christians will feel, even in Australia, like foreigners, even here. The media doesn't speak our language or share our values. Movies don't represent us, showing characters of, uh, of Christian character. Christians are usually the dumb ones or the silly ones or the corrupt ones. Friends, even our friends, will strive for things that we know are only temporary, while we strive, or we should strive, for an inheritance in heaven, our true home, that will never spoil or fade. We should live by sacrifice rather than by accumulation. Uh, We follow closely in the footsteps of Jesus in this, who had no permanent place to call home, but who now reigns eternally in heaven. Journeying wandering, temporary dwelling. This is where we live. This is where Abraham lives as well. Uh, This new place of Abraham's sojournings in Gerar, as I said, we'll learn as much as uh, we need to know about these places. He comes to the land. This is the land of the Philistines. Uh, A powerful people uh, are the Philistines. They are the people who in in later times, in the time of King David, they would become Israel's great enemies. 
uh, and already uh, trouble is brewing. Sarah is stolen from Abraham, this time for a second time. Uh, She's stolen by a king. Maybe you remember the same thing happening in chapter 12 in Egypt. Uh, There's a famine in the land. Abraham goes with his family down to Egypt and immediately Pharaoh catches sight of Sarah and invites her into his palace and makes her his own. Again, Abraham wanders into a foreign land with his family and animals. He knows uh, that he will gain the attention of the jealous and powerful king or chief of whichever land he moves into. Uh, Kings would take what they wanted and kings would kill whoever resisted. And so knowing that the king will probably make a move on his wife, Abraham tells everyone that she is just his sister. And he tells her to do the same, to say that she is just his sister. And it's another example, just to pause again, it's another example of what it can sometimes mean to live uh, as a sojourner or an exile, what it can mean to live behind enemy lines, so to speak. Abraham has to carefully negotiate danger at every turn. And as a result, he and his wife, they wind up leading a double life for much of the time. Privately, they are husband and wife, but externally and for public view, uh, they maintain this ruse of brother brother and sister and nothing more. Uh, Christians in persecuted places are often forced to make similar decisions. Depending on where you live, it's not always cowardice to keep your Christianity to yourself. It might be the only wise course of action. Uh, Even in Australia, uh, Christians who do good things because of their Christian convictions will sometimes explain their reasons in secular terms. And sometimes that's a good thing to do, a reasonable strategy. For example, it's, it's up for debate of course, but for example, a Christian might go into politics because they want to promote justice and mercy for Christ's sake. That might be their reason. But when they're interviewed on the ABC, they might talk up the justice and mercy aspect of their their motivations and downplay the Christ, which may actually be wise if they want to gain a hearing in this society, or maybe that's not for the best. Like I say, that's up for debate. Another example, a Christian CEO may want to build a profitable company in order to give grants and donations to the underprivileged so that they can you know, give back uh, and, uh, and share wealth uh, and lift people up from beneath. But a Christian CEO who wants all of this for Christian reasons may, in board meetings, primarily speak in terms of profitability for the sake of the shareholders uh, because that's the language uh, of the people that they're speaking to. Uh, a Christian public servant might choose to wear the issued rainbow lanyard for their keys uh, because they genuinely believe that in accepting... uh, because they genuinely believe, as a Christian, in accepting and loving all their neighbours in Christ's name, even if they wouldn't necessarily sign up to everything that usually goes with the the rainbow flag. Uh, Like we discussed... um, and, and so sometimes it can take wisdom to navigate how we, uh, how we speak, how we present ourselves to a world that may be, uh, may be against us in other ways. But like we discussed when Abraham lost his wife in similar circumstances back in chapter 12, I am going to stop short of saying that Abraham does the right thing. It is not at all obvious that Abraham is in the right when he calls his wife his sister. His wife is placed in danger for the sake of saving his own life. It's hard to put that in honourable terms. Uh, But this does illustrate the danger and the delicacy 
of his sojourning life. What happens next is that having taken Sarah for his own wife, Abimelech's household is afflicted with sickness. So the king is afflicted with a sickness. It's God's punishment, just like uh, it happened to Pharaoh when they received plagues. Uh, God appears to Abimelech in a dream and God says to him uh, in verse 3 of chapter 20, God says, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. And to God, within the dream, Abimelech pleads innocence. He explains that he genuinely believed Sarah to be Abraham's sister, uh, which he did. And God says this, I think I've got the words up here. God says to Abimelech this, I know that you've done this in the integrity of your heart. That's funny, isn't it? You've stolen this wife in the integrity of your heart. But he really didn't know. Um, He was innocent of crime. Uh, It was I, the Lord, who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you will surely die, you and all who are yours. Remember that picture I gave you from Genesis chapter 1 verse 2 of chaos, but God's spirit hovering over the chaos? See how God is hovering over this mess of, uh, of Abraham and Sarah and Abimelech? God is sparing the innocent, Sarah and Abimelech, from sin and danger. And the upshot of all of this, this heavenly conversation that uh, God has with Abimelech, is that Abimelech and Abraham meet. And Abimelech again pleads his innocence to Abraham. He says, I'm sorry, I didn't know. You said she was your sister. And, and before this foreign king, uh, this foreign king is strangely shown to be uh, fearsome but righteous, innocent of, innocent of sin. Uh, but the accusation gets levelled back on Abraham. He's the one who's done wrong. He says, why did you lie to me and bring this guilt on me and my kingdom? And Abraham's response is uh, equal parts uneasy and funny. Uh, Abraham says to Abimelech that Sarah really is his sister. Sarah really is Abraham's sister. Fancy that. She really is. His half-sister by his father. So he wasn't telling a lie. But what? (laughs) In a way, in a way, this presents Abraham too as being innocent. He's told the truth. His conscience is clean. Technically, he's in the clear. But in another way, it shows us that Abraham is a shockingly morally compromised figure, isn't he? Again and again. He trades in half-truths. He's married, for crying out loud, to his own sister. And the Bible, as far as I can tell, gives us no neat, comfortable justification for Abraham's relationship with his sister. It doesn't try to explain in anywhere that I can find... Uh, that indicates that uh, this was somehow reasonable or justifiable in those days for some reason. It leaves us simply, I would say, in awe again of God's mercy and grace to give blessing to the unworthy and to make righteous those who are sinners. We can apply that to ourselves too, by the way. God gives mercy to the unworthy and makes righteous those who are sinners. Uh, At the end of that, and I've taken a long time on this, it's a long chapter. Uh, Abimelech returns Sarah to Abraham. Uh, In fact, Abimelech pays Abraham uh, in sheep and ox and servants and silver to make up for uh, his inadvertent crime. Uh, He gives Abraham free reign in the land according to God's promise. 
uh, and Abimelech and his family are, are healed of the sickness that's come on them. And we see in this mess, in this chaotic disaster, that God is hovering and ordering. Abraham, by his own wit and wisdom, has sort of got himself out of it, but mainly got himself into it. But God uh, is preserving the family that he's made his promises to. The second episode is quite short. Happy Father's Day, by the way. God keeps his promise to Abraham and Sarah at long last. With Abraham now 100 years old, he becomes a father for the second time, but the first legitimate time to his wife. Sarah is 90 years old and she gives birth to her firstborn Isaac. Uh, in, uh, from verses 1 to 7, verses 1 and 2 remind us of the significance of this. This is no ordinary birth. The son is God's promise. The parents are impossibly old. This is the work of God alone, a true miracle. Verses 3 and 4 demonstrate Abraham and Sarah's obedient response. They name him Isaac according to what God told them to uh, name him back in chapter 17. They circumcise him again according to what God had told them to do in chapter 17. They even do it on the eighth day to the day of when God had told them uh, they should do it. Then for all the weighty and theological significance of this birth, and it's massive, isn't it? We've been waiting so long for Isaac to arrive and it all kind of gets wrapped up in just seven verses and two of those verses are verses six and seven. Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. She knows it's kind of comical to be so old, but it's joyful laughter as well. She said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I've borne him a son in his old age. Every parent spends precious moments just like this in the days after their first child is born. Just gazing and gushing and glowing with joy and wonder. Uh, It's a precious time, isn't it? Uh, A pet peeve of mine is Christians sometimes overusing the word miracle. Okay, some Christians will call every coincidence or happy chance a miracle. I don't like calling childbirth a miracle. There's literally 8 billion people on the planet, alive today. Millions are born every day. Can we really call that a miracle? But, as cynical as I can be, as cold and rational as I like to think I can be at times, I've been there three times now when it's happened. And even against my own rational judgment, oh man, it looks and feels and seems like a miracle, doesn't it? Abraham and Sarah's circumstances are unique. Uh, This is a true miracle child. But their joy is, uh, is a pure joy that every parent knows. It's a beautiful thing. And I just love that there's space given to this gushing uh, in those two verses. Happy Father's Day, Abraham, but it's not to last. Cynically, I would say he turns out to be the world's best dad. I'm picturing the mug that you might get on Father's Day. About two years go by. Uh, A feast is held. This is the second story that we read, the third in, in the series of four. About two years go by and a feast is held when Isaac is weaned. So he's probably about two years old or something like that. But on the day of the feast, drama erupts. It says in verse 9 that Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian whom she'd born to Abraham laughing. So this is Abraham's first illegitimate son, Ishmael, is laughing at Isaac. And the drama here is is entirely predictable. 
So for context, if you weren't here with us or if you're not familiar with the story from a few weeks ago, uh, God had promised Abraham a son. I think that much we've covered. At the time that God had promised Abraham a son, it was already well established that Abraham and Sarah couldn't conceive together. They'd been married years. They were already in old age. Sarah was already past the age of childbearing. They'd given up on that hope, but God promised a son regardless. And for years after the promise, still no son is forthcoming. And so in desperation, Sarah offers to Abraham, her husband, her young foreign maid for him to sleep with so he can conceive through her, which Abraham obediently and stupidly does. I mean, what could go wrong? When Hagar falls pregnant and she gets, in, she gets instantly plucky with her mistress, she puffed up with importance for carrying the air and for doing what her mistress couldn't do. And even if she hadn't been so, It's not hard to imagine that Sarah would have been instantly jealous anyway. And predictably, Sarah is jealous, full of it. And she mistreats Hagar viciously enough that Hagar flees. This is back in chapter, I can't remember, 16, I think. Uh, God meets Hagar in the wilderness and promises that her son too will receive God's blessing And God instructs her to return to Abraham's home and to submit to her mistress. And then the whole cycle starts again. Jealousy, mistreatment, flee. About 12 difficult years pass with Abraham loving both his wife and his son who his wife despises. It's a difficult life for Abraham in this household. And it comes to a head at the feast of Isaac's weaning. Isaac's about two. And Ishmael, the son of Hagar, is caught, it says, laughing at Isaac. Now, the, the Hebrew word for laughing it has a wide range of meanings. We've heard it used in context just a few verses ago where Sarah is laughing with joy and almost comic kind of relief. Uh, we also see earlier on cynical laughter when Sarah is told she's going to have a child and she laughs at, at, the, at, at the promise because she doesn't quite believe it. Uh, laughter, uh, the word can also be used for, um, for revelry, uh, for partying, for battling. It's a wide-ranging term. Uh, it's obvious in here from the context that Ishmael isn't playing, he's mocking. And he's probably being quite vicious. It could even be violent. But we don't know. It just uses the word laughter. I think it's, you know, it's a piece of writing. It's a craft. Uh, and so there's... Uh, there's, this, uh, uh, there's this theme that gets carried on. And so Sarah says, I can't stand this in my home. She loves Isaac, despises Ishmael, and she says to Abraham, he's got to go. And Abraham doesn't know what to do. And so uh, God speaks to Abraham, and this time God says to Abraham in verse 12, do as she tells you. You might remember the first time round when Sarah begins, uh, begins persecuting Hagar. She says to Abraham, uh, she's got to go. And Abraham says, it says, Abraham listened to his wife. Oh, no, sorry, before that. Uh, when, uh, when, uh, when it was Sarah's idea for Abraham to, seek with, to sleep with Hagar, uh, it says, Abraham listened to his wife. And it's virtually a quote Uh, of what Adam did when he listened to his wife and ate the fruit. Uh, It's clearly framed as sin and uh, an abdication of his duties. But here in verse 12 of 21, this time God says, 
listen. She wants him to go. Do as she tells you. Not because she told you, but because I now tell you and give you permission to let him go. Now, we sung that song, You Give and Take Away. And in a handful of verses, Abraham receives his son. And a couple of verses later, he's driving out his first son. And we've got every indication to believe and understand that Abraham truly, fully loved his son Ishmael. In fact, before Isaac came along, Abraham wanted Ishmael to be the heir. Uh, It's a moment of extreme torment, but he's asked to do it. Well, may you never face that same situation, but if you're a parent, there is a time where you do need to say goodbye to your child. Uh, There's a big time when they're ready to leave home, and, uh, and that's in many ways what you're trying to gear up for and prepare them for, but it's still a rending. It's still difficult for mums and dads to say goodbye and to take their hands off and to trust God, but that's what you must do, is trust God with the danger of the world, even over that precious child that you love. Uh, but we're prepared all the way through, aren't we, for um, smaller goodbyes. Uh, as, uh, as every bit of growth in your child uh, signifies uh, the joy of them maturing and growing and delight, and the grief of you losing some of their uh, dependence uh, and, and, uh, and that innocence. But I would say too, there, there's, there's a lot of fathers and mothers out there who do have to say goodbye to their children, not of their own will. And I'm thinking, of course, there's sickness and there's death, but uh, increasingly families are being broken apart while kids are still in the home and still dependent. And gee, I know some dads who have to say goodbye to their child and they don't get to speak into their life in the same way and they don't get to live with them and they no longer have any say over who the people are who live in the home with their child. They lose the say over who might even father their child for the better part of the week. And to those dads as well, trust the Lord. Almost impossible task, but that is faith, to trust the Lord even with your own child. It's a test of faith. It's a terrible task. But sometimes it's what it comes down to. They send, uh, Abraham uh, gives uh, Hagar and Ishmael just enough supplies, some water and some bread, and he sends them out, it says, into the wilderness of Beersheba. Uh, They don't get very far. Uh, The water runs out. Uh, We didn't read this part of it. Uh, The water runs out. Hagar is convinced that they're going to die. She puts her son, who must be about 12 or 13 years old, under one bush. Uh, She moves away, it says a bow shot, Uh, so a good distance away, uh, probably out of sight and out of earshot because her son is weeping. And she decides, I cannot stand to watch him die, we're going to die apart. And while she prepares to die, the Lord speaks to her. And he says, I hear you. And I hear your son. He says, uh, your son will not be an heir. Uh, Isaac is the heir. But because of Abraham, his father, I will bless the son. He too will become a nation, a different nation. And you will live. And God tells her to open her eyes. And when she opens her eyes, she sees a well, which presumably was there before. And somehow she didn't see it before. Uh, And so she drinks from the well. She gathers up her son uh, and they live. 
And so God in his kindness, uh, hovering over, watching, listening, uh, he brings it to pass and he saves the child and his mum. And then we come back. Ah, And so to go back to world's best dad, less cynically now, we have our father in heaven, which we've been reminded of before. He is always there, always watching. The father of every child, even your own, if you have to say goodbye to him. World's best dad. And finally, the last little bit. And first, my wife, now my well. This is back to Abraham's dealings with Abimelech. It's almost uh, a match uh, for what happens in chapter 20. Uh, Abraham and Abimelech come together. Uh, they decide to make a treaty and a covenant. Whereas before in chapter 20, uh, Abimelech, had, uh, at the end of it, had gifted uh, sheep and oxen and silver to Abraham. At the end of chapter 21, Abraham offers uh, a bunch of livestock in return so that they can make a covenant. And remember how covenants are made? Uh, you offer sacrifice of a few animals and, uh, and you say, this is our treaty and our agreement. And if one of us breaks the treaty then what has happened to the animals that have been slaughtered will happen to whoever breaks the treaty. Now again, we're reminded of this strange tension that Abraham lives in, that uh, on the one hand, he is very wealthy, uh, he is powerful beyond belief, but he's also this uh, fragile, delicate, you know, gypsy, wandering sort of guy without a place to call his home. Uh, and so uh, it, it is this, this amazing thing that he's able to strike deals with kings uh, because of God's blessing to him. And in the process, they struck the deal, and then Abraham sets apart seven more animals, seven new lambs, it says. And Abimelech, they, you know, they've, they've cut the covenant, they've struck the deal, and Abimelech says, but, but what are these other seven lambs all about? And Abraham says, yeah, well, there's something else I've been meaning to talk to you about. There's a well that I dug, me and my men. And your men have commandeered the well, and it's mine. And wouldn't it be a part of a treaty and good faith that we've made for you to return that well to me? And as an act of good faith, to show to you my truthfulness, I'm giving you these seven uh, ewe lambs uh, as proof that it is my well. And just like with the wife, Abimelech pleads innocence. He says, I, I, honestly, I had no idea. I didn't know that it was your well. I didn't know my men had taken it, but I take your word for it. And he returns the well uh, to Abraham. Again, just this, uh, this is Abraham probably at his best in terms of shrewdness uh, and dealing with people, but again, we've got God's hand in caring for him. And just in conclusion, one last little detail from that story. It says, uh, that story begins in chapter 21, in verse 22, it says, at that time. So it's it's in the general vicinity of time that all these other events have been going on. At, in that time, so probably not necessarily after the events of Isaac and Ishmael, but probably somewhere through that time, Abraham and his men, in doing their farming, have dug a well, etc. And then through that time, he sends his son out into the wilderness and the slave woman, Hagar, and what do they find that saves their life in that very same wilderness? A well. Now, we don't know if it's the same well. We can't be absolutely certain of the chronology of it. But it seems, again, like God's faithful, fortuitous hand guiding circumstances, 
The well itself, I don't believe, is a miracle. But it's God's faithfulness and sovereignty that he uh, himself and through Abraham, his agent, is providing for his son, in this instance, the illegitimate son, Ishmael. Uh, But God is the one uh, who provides water in the wilderness uh, and is always hovering, always watching, always listening, always serving and helping. And at the end of all that, you know, a lot has happened in chapters 20 uh, and 21. A lot of chaos, a lot of madness, a lot of reminders of sin and shame. And over and above it all, a God who hovers and watches and orders and provides. And so we give thanks to God who loves us, uh, who is always there watching us and always helping us, no matter what our life might begin to look like as it unravels sometimes. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, your faithfulness to Abraham. Uh, We thank you that uh, the chaos in which he lives is is actually so real and relatable, uh, even though uh, we live worlds and generations apart. Uh, We thank you for uh, your uh, your attention to these individuals, to Baron Sarah and to fatherless Abraham, uh, to... Uh, to the poor, wretched Hagar and Ishmael. Father, we thank you for the grand promises that these things uh, begin uh, and set in train, Uh, that through Abraham you will bless uh, his family and a people and you will bless even the nations uh, who shelter at your feet. And we thank you uh, for your son, Jesus, uh, the, the constant reminder Uh, of your love and your sacrifice and your special care for us. And pray that we may live uh, in faith and repentance uh, and do all that you require. Amen.